welcome you to this first part of a brand new series called Starting Point. And if you haven't yet done so and would be encouraged to do so to take out the colored insert in your service folder, you'll find notes on one side and questions or a Bible study on the other. If you're someone who's uh, listening or watching online, if you press on the notes tab, you'll be able to download and or print off uh, those notes and questions as well. Hope everyone had a happy New Year celebration a few days ago. Um, By the looks of it on Facebook and all the pictures that were posted, it seemed like many of you had a great time with family and friends. Um, I have to lament a little bit that that our New Year celebration wasn't quite as exciting. Um, It was great, just not as exciting as I just loved being able to stay home for the evening for once and uh, be able to just enjoy time with family. So here's what we did. We um, enjoyed some good food. We um, watched a little bit of Dick Clark's Rockin' Christmas, New Year's Eve with Ryan Seacrest, which happens to be the longest title ever given to a TV show. Uh, that's the entire title. And then um, my kids on New Year's Eve being a game night kind of thing introduced me to a game that I had never played before. Uh, how many of you, any of you ever heard of Bananagrams before? Anyone play? A few of you played some Bananagrams. Rob, you played Bananagrams. Are you, are you good at it? No, I, I, let me tell you a little bit about it for those that don't know anything about it. Here's a picture of uh, Bananagrams. Um, essentially, it's, it's kind of like Scrabble, but different. Um, where, how it's like Scrabble is that you get a bunch of tiles with letters on them, and, and the goal is to make connecting and intersecting words so that no matter which way you go with the words or with the letters that they produce words. And for me, the first question always with a game is, how do you win? I mean, because that's the only reason we play games. That's why they were invented, was someone needs to win. And so the winner is the one who ends up getting rid of their stack. This is the short version. Their stack of tiles first, and is able to spell out words with every single tile being used. And so I found this to be a fun game. I also found it, especially towards the end, to be really frustrating. And so what happened is that I had a bunch of words formed together, up and down, sideways, whatever, and I had two tiles left. And I sat there for what seemed like an eternity, probably it was only five to seven minutes, trying to figure out a way to get those last two letters to connect with all, with all the others. And, and I tried to cheat, like I made up a couple words, and my kids right away said, no, Dad, that's not a word, and they were right. I tried to do a nickname, so I had two E's, and then there was Jeff, and, you know, Jeffy, you know, put the two E's at the end. They felt like that's not how you spell Jeffy, nor is that a nickname. Um, And so I just could not get rid of those last two. And it's just driving me crazy. And I think part of the problem is, is that I already had gone in a direction with the letters, okay? And so there's tons of directions you can go with these letters and different words. But I had already gone in a direction... And I had a hard time visualizing or thinking about things in a different way than what was already on the table with just minor modifications. It didn't work. And so what I think would have been best, what I should have done, is to just blow it all up. And I think if I would have just started over, if I would have gone back to the starting point, I think it would have helped a lot to just have a blank slate on the table in front of me. We're talking about starting points in this series. 
And like the video showed, there's a lot of things. Almost everything has a starting point. You had a starting point. And if you're older than I am, I'm not going to ask when it is, especially if you're a, a woman. You never ask age, right? But you had a starting point. Um, your relationships had a starting point. Your schooling had a starting point. Your career had a starting point. Bananagrams has a starting point, and then a restarting point. This sermon has a start point. You're still kind of in it. And as the video ended, so true, faith also has a starting point. And what I want to talk about, what we're going to start with this morning specifically, is not so much faith. We're going to talk about that later in the series. But what I want you to think about is that your knowledge and understanding of who God is and what he's like had a starting point at some time and at some place. For some of you, maybe your starting point was as an adult. And someone at work talked to you about the God they believed in. Or maybe you opened up the Bible on your own for the first time and learned some things about God. Or, or maybe it was going to a church service because some pretty girl invited you and you heard about God for the first time or something like that. I would guess for many of us, the starting point of knowledge of God likely happened, though, when we were children. And you probably are thinking of a person, maybe, who first started to, to give you a framework of understanding of who God is and what he's like. Probably for many of us, it was a parent that shared with us things about God, uh, you know, before we went to bed or had family devotions or whatever. Uh, maybe it was a vacation Bible school you went to, a friend invited you, you heard about God and his love and his goodness, uh, um, all sorts of different ways. But at some point, many of us in our childhood, there was a framework where we began to sort of think about and understand an idea of who God is and what he's about. And most of the time, the childhood framework for God is something like this, that God is good, that God hears prayers and answers them, that God loves good things and rejoices in them, and he gets upset about bad things, that God is love. It's kind of the basic framework that many of us first looked through the lens of who God is. And that framework of who God is served us probably pretty well as children. But then something happened, probably in almost every single one of our lives. For some of us, it happened in high school. For some of us, it happened in college. For some of us, it happened after college, but if you're a thinking person, this happened. That at some point in your life, the framework of who God is and what you learned bump up against and collided with the complexity and difficulty of life. And you began to have questions. And you began to wonder. And when the professor at college said certain things that were totally against what you grew up with, it caused you to pause and maybe even to doubt. And he began to doubt, maybe, some of the basic tenets that you grew up with thinking about God. So 
You know, you, you, you think about God and, and, and you, you think about who he is. God, I, I thought you answered prayer, but it doesn't seem like you're answering my prayer right now. God, I, I thought you were good, but then how come so many bad things happen? And a lot of times, even to good people. God, I, I thought you cared and yet this thing happened in my life and this thing happened to my loved one and this thing is happening in my marriage and so on and so forth. And we bump up into these things. And like I said before, sometimes this collision causes people to doubt and sometimes it even causes people to move away from God altogether. Now, what I want to do and what I want to tell you is that to be a Christian does not mean that you need to sort of bury your head in the sand and just b- sort of think that those doubts and those questions don't exist. Just ca- try to ignore them like they're not really there. That, that's in- disingenuous. They're there. We shouldn't stick our heads in the, sound, in the sand. What I want to do in this series is we want to acknowledge that sometimes our framework of who God is as a child bumps up and collides with the complexities of life, and then we want to talk about that. And what I'm guessing is that sometimes it's, it's hard to really think about God and all the complexities because we're working with a, a framework that's already in place, and we're working with some, some things that the world is saying, and you're just trying to move letters around. Here's what I want to do in the series. I, I want to blow things up. And for the next eight weeks, I don't want you to, like, disown your faith or anything like that, okay? Keep your faith if you have faith. But what I do want you is to mentally and intellectually approach God with a blank slate. That's how we're going to lead this series, that we're approaching God with a blank slate. And if you are a guest of Bethlehem, like I said before, there is not a better series that we've ever done at Bethlehem for you than this one. It is a God thing that you're here. If you're not a guest, if you're someone who uh, has been a Christian for a while, this is going to be an equally powerful series for you, I hope and pray, because it's going to add a depth to your faith that maybe you hadn't had before. See, the Bible complements childlike faith. It doesn't necessarily complement childhood faith. There's a difference there. Childlike faith is something that grabs onto things you can't really explain. Childhood faith is immature faith that doesn't wrestle with things, that doesn't think about things, that just ignores things. And so we're going to wipe the bananagrams off the table, and we're going to start piecing them back together in this series. So where do we start? Where do we start? Well, a lot of times when people think about God, they start with this question. It's our first fill-in for the day. What do I believe? What do I believe? Do, uh, do I believe that the world could be created in six 24-hour days? Do I believe that God can really listen to every single person's prayers and the whole planet at the same time, keep them all straight and answer them all? Because I saw Bruce Almighty and Jim Carrey could not do it. I mean, there was too many prayer requests coming in. Do I believe, do I believe that there was a man named Jonah who was really swallowed up by a big fish, lived in there three days like, a, like Pinocchio, and then was puked up onto land, got up and walked away from it? 
Do I believe that God can become a human being, live, die, and rise again? Most of us maybe start with our musings about God with the question, what do I believe? And the thing is, this isn't a bad question. You're going to have to confront this question. But in this series, it's just not where we're going to start. Because I think there's a better question as to where we can start with a blank slate as we think about God. The better question that I want to start with is this, what do I see? Before we can think about what do I believe, a better question to ask is, what do I see? And not what do I see when I look at my life and the circumstances around me, not what do I see when I look at, you know, this area of, uh, of town, so to speak. What do I see when I look beyond my life? What do I see when I look beyond where I live? What do I see when I look beyond my country? What do I see when I look beyond this earth? Here's the thing. What do I see when I look up? What do I see when I look beyond the ceiling beyond the clouds, what do I see when I look at the stars? So in this first week of Starting Point, we're going to do a little bit of stargazing together. And before we get into some of the the content that I want to share with you, um, I'm going to preface this by saying I am not an astronomer, nor am I a scientist. I am a pastor, okay? And so a lot of the information I'm going to share with you, I glean from other resources, whether they be scientists, astronomers, and or even other pastors who've preached on things like this. And I'm just wanting to share it with you because I'm not an expert in it. But man, have I benefited from thinking the way that uh, these people have, have thought and know some of the things that, that they know. All right, let's stargaze. Here's a picture of the sky. I've never seen the sky as brilliant as that. I've seen it close to that. Uh, went to school in New Orleans, Minnesota, which is a small town, not a lot of city lights. It's not a city. Our college was near the outskirts of town, and so um, myself and the girl I was dating, who's now my wife, we'd go on walks in the evening, and on a clear sky as we walked to the outskirts of town, uh, you could see tons of stars. And I remember, um, you know, very much liking this because it was my chance to impress her because I was in astronomy class and I could point out things and constellations. And even if I didn't remember everything from class, I would still make it up but sound very confident about it. And she'd be like, oh, that sounds good. And I'd like to think that maybe the stars and my knowledge of them had something to do with the fact that we're married today. I have no idea, but I do remember looking at brilliant skies. Maybe you've seen something somewhat like this. Here's another picture that you haven't seen necessarily in person before because this was taken, a picture taken by the the Hubble telescope that uh, orbits about 350 miles above the Earth. And as this powerful, powerful camera slash telescope took a picture of (laughs) space, of the universe, All of these little points of light are not stars. All the little points of light that you see from this picture from Hubble are galaxies. That, in fact, astronomers and scientists tell us that there are over 180, or I'm sorry, 100 billion galaxies in our universe. 
that there are at least 100 billion galaxies in our universe. Now, let me talk about a galaxy for a second, okay? Because, um, well, because I'm not sure you understand how big a galaxy is. So, first of all, do you know the name of the galaxy that you live in? It's the same as mine, just so that you know, um, <laughs> I think. Anyone? Anyone? Milky Way. It's the name is, is the Milky Way. Now, when you were in school, you didn't learn as much about the Milky Way. You didn't make models of the Milky Way. You know what you made a model of with styrofoam balls and paint and all that kind of stuff? It was of the solar system, which is much different than the Milky Way. The solar system has the sun in the middle, and then there's a bunch of planets. I'm going to mention some. They're not in order. I just want you to know that because I can't remember them in order. But like Mercury and Venus and Mars and Earth and Uranus and Neptune and Jupiter. Remember those? Saturn, all those? Yeah? Okay. That's the model you made. It was of the solar system. Big place. When it comes to the Milky Way, next picture, here's a picture of it. This is our galaxy. It is uh, so big first of all, that we, and so far, that we can't take a picture of it. This is actually computer-generated because we can't go out far enough to look back at the Milky Way and take a picture. This is a scientist's best guesstimate through other technical devices of what the Milky Way looks like. The solar system you live in is in the Milky Way. Do you want to see it? All right. Get out your glasses. Here it is. Right there. See it? So the sun in the middle with all those planets orbiting, like it's, it's right there. Can't you see it? It's, it's in the galaxy that we live in. That is one of how many? At least 100 billion galaxies in our universe. When people have tried to make this proportionate, they've shrunk down the Milky Way to the size of the United States. And proportionately, you know what the size of our solar system would be compared to the Milky Way if the Milky Way was the size of the United States? The size of a dime. Have you ever dropped a dime in your yard and tried to find it? Have you ever dropped a dime in the state of Minnesota somewhere and tried to find it? What if I said, close your eyes, count to 10, I'm going to drop a dime somewhere in the United States, okay? And you find it. That's how big the galaxy we live in is. And it's one of at least 100 billion galaxies in our universe. <laughs> the universe is so big that scientists had to invent a tool of measurement to measure it because there's no other way we could speak about it. And so what they used is something called the light year, so let me talk about the light year for a second. Um, you know how fast light travels? Light travels 186,000 miles a second. Which perspective? Light can travel around the equator seven times in a second. So a light year is how far light would travel in a year's worth of seconds. One light year, which, which we measure the universe by proportionately, is 5.88 trillion miles. 
one light year. And you want to guess how big our galaxy is? 5.88 trillion miles is a light year times 100,000 is how big our galaxy is. And this is one out of at least, what? 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe that we live in. Now, nice science lesson, Ben, but what does this have to do with God? What does this have to do with a starting point to God's existence? Well, the reason why I went so long and lengthy in this is because this is exactly something that a man 3,000 years ago wrote about when it comes to understanding, first of all, that there is a God and who he is and what he's like. It's a man named David. He wrote a poem that we speak. Back then, many people sang it. It's, from, it's Psalm 19, and here's what, here's what David writes. Here's why we went to such great lengths talking about the bigness of the universe. David writes that the heavens, the universe, another word for it, it declares the glory of God. The skies, they proclaim the work of his hands. You know what this is saying? It's saying that the sky is there to preach a sermon. It's saying that the stars are there to preach a sermon. It's like the best object lesson that there's ever been. If, if you've noticed before that oftentimes in my preaching, I use objects. You know why? Because you're used to watching three-minute YouTube clips, and I talk for a half hour. And so I need to keep your attention. So I use object lessons, and I bring out vinegar and baking soda, and I put them together, and then there's this explosion, and then we talk about praise and things like that, right? Okay, so object lessons help people learn. It helps keep you awake. The universe is the greatest object lesson that there ever has been, and it was put there by God to preach a sermon. That's what David's saying. Day after day, he continues, they, who's they? The heavens and the skies. They pour forth speech. They talk. Night after night, they display knowledge. I never thought about it that way. Verse 3. There is no speech or language where the voice of the heavens and the skies are not heard. What this means is that if you're in China, you don't have to translate God's sermon into Chinese. You just look up. It says the same thing as what we are hearing in English or Portuguese or Spanish or whatever. There's no one that doesn't understand this voice. Their voice, the stars, the skies, the heavens, go out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. What David is saying in Psalm 19 is that when you take a moment to open your eyes and to see, there's a sermon being preached. There's an object lesson being talked about. And what is the sermon about? It's about God, but more specifically, what about God? Let's go back. Oh, let's go to our first fill-in. 
or second fill-in. The truth about the universe, the bigness, the vastness that we talked about, leads to the truth about God's existence. The truth about the immensity of the universe and other things we're going to talk about in a second leads to the truth about God's existence. What is the truth about God's existence? That's where we're headed. Let's go back to Psalm 19, verse 1. The second portion of this verse that we read before says this, that the skies proclaim an accident. The skies proclaim some amazing, you know, sort of combustion that happened uh, on accident and produced a universe. No, the skies proclaim the work of God's hands. That there was someone involved. Here's our next fill-in. The first part of the Sermon of the Stars tells us that God exists. That's what David is saying. When you take a moment to open your eyes to see, let's not talk about what do I believe yet, just let's just, what do I see? It says that God exists. Um, this past week, uh, one of our, our members uh, posted an uh, uh, article from the Wall Street Journal that uh, actually was kind of, to me, a proof that God exists too because it was exactly some information that helped uh, with my sermon today and that I'm going to use a little bit. But this very, I guess, uh, respected author, respected enough to be published in the Wall Street Journal, talked about the universe and talked about the more that people get to know about the universe the more that people begin to realize that there had to have been intelligence that put it there, that made it happen. You see, over the years, scientists have been trying to to, uh, sort of reproduce what a Big Bang would have been like and to prove that it could actually happen, and and they have been unable to do it. And in fact, uh, numbers people's, number people have been putting the odds of the universe happening by chance at one in ten quintillion of a chance. So have you ever counted to quintillion before? I didn't even know that was a number before I read the article. But I did a little more research, and here's what a quintillion is like. So our next picture. Um, So if this was the Sears Tower proportionately, this amount of pennies is a quintillion. So think about 10 of those. And here's the Sears Tower. I know it's not called the Sears Tower anymore. I'm, I'm using the old, the old title for it. But 10 of these of pennies is 10 quintillion. So in essence, you know, the odds would be for you to flip a coin 10 quintillion times and every time it comes up heads would be the odds that the universe could have happened by accident. Skies proclaim the work of God's hands. The article also talked about how for many years people have felt like there has to be other life in the universe, another planet where life is being, being cultivated. And since the 1960s, a program called SETI, SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, had been going on by people in our country, and they've used a whole bunch of different technological methods to listen more than anything for life because it's, it's easier to listen than to get so far out that you can see, and they have not been able to hear a single thing that would elicit there being life outside of earth. 
the article said that the universe is deafening silence, it said. That in fact, it is amazing that there can be life on this planet. Think about it. We are just so far away from our sun so that we don't burn up. We're, so, we're just far enough away or close enough that we don't freeze up. And there's something else I learned from the article. We're perfectly positioned so we don't crack up. Because there's this planet uh, called Jupiter. His immense size means an immense amount of gravitational pull. Here's a picture of Jupiter versus the size of Earth. Did you know it was that different? Huge planet. And what scientists and astronomers notice is that the gravitational pull that the huge planet of Jupiter has allows for asteroids to avoid Earth. Whereas if Jupiter was not perfectly placed there, tens of thousands of asteroids would likely hit Earth and have destroyed it. Have you opened your eyes lately? Sermon of the stars. God exists. The other part of verse 1 says that the heavens declare the glory, the bigness, the greatness of God. You know, I was thinking about how big the universe was the past couple weeks in preparing for this message, and one of the thoughts that occurred to me was, wow, God, that's kind of overkill. I mean, if we're the only people in the universe, why did you have to, did you create such a huge place that we can't fathom? I mean, it's like, buying a house that is way too big for your family. And why? Why, right? And if the size of the universe was only about what we needed, it's too big. But what if, what if the universe is as big as it is to preach a sermon? about the bigness and the glory of God. What if that's why God created it? So huge that we cannot fathom because he wanted us to better understand a God we cannot fathom. You know what I would say then about the size of the universe? It's just about the right size. It's a perfect size for a perfect object lesson. And I love how a thousand years later, a man named Paul wrote about the the same sort of thing in Romans. That's our next fill-in, that God is great, that God is big. Here's what Paul wrote. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, like what? Like his power and his nature, They've been clearly written about. They've been clearly read about. They've been clearly believed in. (laughs) More base than that. They've been clearly seen. Being understood God's nature and power and glory from what has been made so that we as people are without excuse. 
Now, I'll confess that when I think about how big the universe is, I start to feel pretty small. I remember flying uh, in a plane once, and we ended up, the flight pattern was right over our, our subdivision, and I could actually see our house, kind of. And I was, remember thinking, like, wow, my yard does not look as big as when I'm trying to cut it on a summer's day. I mean, there's nothing there where I can take my thumb in that plane and cover up half the neighborhood, right? And I felt really small in that moment. But then I was confronted with this week's message and information. I felt smaller. Let me, let me show you. Because, you know, like, can you see your yard? How about your car that you like? How about your family? How about your Bananagrams trophy? You see it? How about all your great accomplishments? Can you see it? How about the sun? And you know the truth is that God wants us to feel small. It's when we better understand his glory. But what you do not need to feel, what I do not need to feel, is insignificant. We may be small, but here's what I know about you. You're not insignificant. Because there's another aspect of God that is preached about through the stars. It's our last point today. And to to look at that, we're going to go to Psalm 103. I love these words, especially in context of what we're talking about today. Here's what the psalmist writes. As high as the heavens are above the earth. How high is the end of the universe above the earth? We have no idea. We know that's 100,000 light years across the Milky Way, but it's one of 100 billion galaxies in the universe. How far is the heavens above the earth? I have no idea. And God's like, that's a perfect illustration for what? To illustrate how great my love is for those who believe in me. As far as the east is from the west. How far is the east from the west? I mean, it's like, it's like one of those brain things that you can't really totally even understand. I know it's a really, really long ways. I don't think there is a distance between east and west. It's just infinite, right? And God is like, you know what? That distance is a perfect illustration for you to better understand how far I have removed your sins, your transgressions from you. See, there's a third part to the Sermon of the Stars. It's our last fill-in, and it's this, that God is love. God exists. There's no way this could happen by chance. God is great. Wow, it's big. God is love. See, the greatest act of power and love that God ever displayed was not creating the universe. The greatest act of power and love was not him creating you. The greatest act of power and love that there ever was, our last point there, was that God decided to die for the creation who messed up his perfect world. The greatest amount of the thing that we should be most, I guess, blown away by today is not the size of the universe. The thing we should be blown away with even more 
is the size of God's love that would allow for his son, Jesus, to die in our place. So here's what I, I want you to do this week. I'm acknowledging that the complexity of life can cause questions about God and can cause questions about um, what we've thought about God. I, let's acknowledge that. And then as we start the starting point here, I want you to do some stargazing this week, whether it's literal or from your heart and mind as you think back to what we talked about today. And I want you to recognize that the complexity and the immensity of the universe is not proof that God doesn't exist, but it is a clear, clear sermon that he does. I want you to think about that. I want you to chew on that. And then I want you to come back next week because we're going to add some more bananagrams to the clean slate we started with today, okay? All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for um, the words of David that we were able to think about, maybe from a brand new perspective. And Lord, today we acknowledge that our faith is not perfect and sometimes we doubt things, uh, sometimes we have questions about things, sometimes we question you, Lord. But today we'd ask that you, first of all, would forgive us for those things because your love through Christ is greater than east is from the west and that then you would work in me and us a stronger confidence in you and your presence in our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name and also pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.